Last Sunday, we finished considering creation week as it's presented to us in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 3, but we're actually not done considering creation week. We might expect the narrative to move on to tell us what happened next, but it doesn't. As often in Old Testament historical narrative, the narrator backs us up to zoom in on uh, something important that was initially summarized or glossed over. Thus, Genesis 2-4 begins the next section of the narrative, but we're looking back to zoom in on day six of creation week. It would have been more convenient and more helpful if the chapter division had come right here. Let's focus on this first section after the prologue, which essentially covers chapters 2-4 to of Genesis. Look at Genesis 2-4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that Yahweh Elohim made the earth and the heavens. One thing that stands out here after reading everything that has gone before is the different way God is referred to. Up to this point, Moses has referred to the Creator as God, translating the Hebrew Elohim. He continues using the title Elohim, but he has added the personal name of God, which our English Bibles tend to put into English as the word Lord in small caps font. This is a traditional convention, not a translation, but the font change is meant to indicate to us English readers that this is, in the Hebrew, underneath the personal name of God, what we could bring over into English letters as Yahweh. Now, how would you know that? Well, you're supposed to read the preface of your English Bible. Almost all English Bibles have a preface in which they explain several things, usually including the original text they translated from, what their philosophy of translation is, and most of the time, how they handle the divine name in the Old Testament. As those of you who've been here for a while know, it has become my personal custom to recognize the name Yahweh when I'm reading my English Bible. I even include it in the PowerPoint slides as I type every verse manually into these slides. I'm following other pastors and professors who use this strategy in their teaching and preaching. This combination that we see here in Genesis 2, Yahweh Elohim, is somewhat unique in the Old Testament. It'll appear 20 times in chapters 2 and 3, and then Moses will use the combination only once more in the Pentateuch, in Exodus 9.30. Beyond that, the combination will only appear 10 more times in the whole Old Testament, with seven of those occurring in the last book of the Hebrew Bible, Chronicles. Why does Moses introduce this combination right here? As we remember that Moses is writing this all down for the benefit of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, surely he wants to make it clear that the God who created the universe is the God of Israel, who has introduced himself to them with the personal name Yahweh. But as we recall how and why God introduces this name to Israel, we can see a bit more. In Exodus 3, as Moses stood before the bush that was burning but did not being destroyed, he anticipates that the Israelites enslaved in Egypt might ask him for the name of the God who supposedly sent him to lead them out of Egypt. So he asks asks what he should tell them. In Exodus 3.14, we read, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And you'll probably see the small caps font in your English Bible. And that's the translators cluing you in that this is the divine name. Except it's not. It's connected to the divine name, but thus far God has not yet told him the answer to the question that he asked, what is his name? First, God says, I am who I am. Or it could be translated, I will be who I will be. That's not his name. That's simply a statement of his self-definition. Nobody else names God. He simply is. And he is who he has always been and will always be. Then he instructs Moses to explain that point to the Israelites. The self-existent one is sending Moses. But then in verse 15, he answers the question. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Sadly, 
I believe that the convention of putting this name as the title Lord in Bible translations has led God's people to forget his name. Commentator John Goldingay summarizes the traditional development pretty simply. He explains how Hebrew manuscripts and ancient Aramaic paraphrases of Scripture camouflage the name Yahweh by providing it with the vowels of the word for the Lord to encourage readers to use that term instead. And other translations of Genesis replace it by the word for Lord in their languages, which obscures the point Genesis makes. Now, it doesn't seem like Adam and Eve knew this name while they were in the garden. Instead, we see at the very end of this first section of Genesis, in the time of one of Adam's grandsons, in Genesis 4.26, we read, At that time, people began to call upon the name of Yahweh. As God explains the significance of his name to Moses, he sets the stage for rescuing the people of Israel from their slavery in Egypt, for promising to fulfill the promises he made previously to the patriarchs, and for claiming the people of Israel for his own special possession. In other words, the name Yahweh is meant to remind them of the covenant faithfulness of their self-existent God. Thus, Moses introduces God's covenant name in Genesis 2 to shape the personal relationship that is about to be described in chapters 2 and 3. In other words, the name Yahweh stamps the nature of God's engagement with Adam and Eve in these chapters with covenantal significance. As we attend to how God is referred to in these opening chapters, other interesting features rise to the surface. Moses, as narrator, consistently refers to him as Yahweh Elohim in chapters 2 and 3. But other speakers don't use the name Yahweh. Both the serpent and Eve will only refer to him as God, or Elohim, in chapter 3. Eve will refer to him as Yahweh, however, at the beginning of chapter 4. And Moses shifts, as the narrator, to only using the personal name Yahweh as he describes the action But then at the end of chapter 4, Eve will refer to him as Elohim, God. When we recognize chapter 2, verse 4, through the end of chapter 4 as the first marked-off unit of narrative after the prologue, and we track how God is referred to, another interesting literary feature becomes visible. Recall that Elohim, God, was used 35 times in the prologue of Genesis, 7 times 5. As it turns out, when we count 20 references to Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God in your English Bible, 10 references to Yahweh by itself, and 5 references to Elohim by itself, in this first major section of Genesis, we get a total of 35 times again. I simply want us to appreciate the literary artistry of Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here. Look again at Genesis 2-4 on the screen. One of the other oddities about this verse in comparison with other these are the generations headings that you're going to see throughout the book of, the, of Genesis is that every other occurrence has these are the generations of somebody. And then we can trace the genealogy and narrative that follows with regard to particular individuals related to that person. Here, however, we have these are the generations of the heaven of heaven and earth. Now, I am interpreting this as a reference to heaven with a capital H, and I think that's actually the key to making sense of this. This section is about heaven and earth in the sense that this narrative section tells the story of what became of the main product coming out of God's creation of heaven and earth, humanity. This then encompasses God's creation and blessing of Adam and Eve, their rebellion against him, God's judgment of them and their descendants, and the beginning of the strife between two lines of offspring. Thus, the heading essentially introduces us to the relationship between the God of heaven and the people of earth, with a focus on the drama unfolding on earth. So let's consider verses 5 to 7, where we're introduced to two problems, two reasons, and two remedies. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for Yahweh Elohim had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then Yahweh Elohim formed the man of dust from the ground 
and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. In a parallel way with how he began the account of creation in the prologue, Moses begins with problems that needed to be resolved by the Creator. We'll look at the two problems in just a second, but let me summarize the structure of these verses with the next slide that you'll see up on the screen. In verse 5, we see the two problems, no wild shrub and no cultivated grain. Then in the second half of verse 5, we see the two reasons for the two problems, no rain and no human to cultivate the grain. Then in verses 6 and 7, we see the two remedies for the two problems, the movements of rain clouds and a man. Now, I've got to explain a few aspects of this that are not necessarily obvious. First, we need to clarify the two problems. Verse 5 first mentions no bush of the field. This refers specifically to wild vegetation that grows, not requiring human involvement. This would be separate from the plant life God created on day three of creation week. In fact, there's good reason to associate this phrase with thorns and thistles that will begin to be a problem for humanity outside the garden after their rebellion against God. Thus, the reason this kind of plant life hadn't appeared on the land on day six of creation week is because there hadn't yet been any rain. Likewise, when Moses refers to no small plant of the field, he's most likely referring to grains that require human cultivation. This is made clear when this precise phrase appears again in Exodus 9.25, describing Yahweh's plague of hail against the Egyptians. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Moses specifies the kinds of plants of the field that were destroyed in verse 31. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud. The same phrase will appear in God's curse of the ground in Genesis 3.18. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. These plants of the field seem to be different from and not included in vegetation God caused the land to sprout on day three of creation week. As one writer summarizes, just as the unformed and unfilled earth of 1-2 called for the Spirit of God to bring order and completion, so the uncultivated state of the field calls for the formation of God's image to bring completeness. As we saw back in Genesis 1-2, with the mention of earth being formless and void, covered in darkness, the rest of the narrative showed how God solved these problems— Likewise, this passage provides the remedies for the two reasons for the two problems. Thus, we should expect the next verses to tell us how God provided a water source and someone to cultivate plant life. The translation of verse 6 is a challenge. The word translated mist in the ESV is translated as spring or stream by other versions. And commentators regularly discuss the difficulty of knowing for sure what form of water is being referred to by this rare Hebrew word. As many students of Scripture have observed, the logic of the passage suggests that readers should expect a reference to rain here. Our earliest ancient biblical commentaries, Jewish Aramaic Targums, consistently used Aramaic words for clouds to translate this term. And Jewish rabbinic literature, written in post-biblical rabbinic Hebrew, uh, included this Hebrew word among several words that refer specifically to clouds. And this makes excellent sense of the passage to me. One commentator counters the typical suggestion that this word must refer to a mist or some kind of underground water source, pointing out that the absence of rain as the reason for the lack of shrubs would be meaningless if there were a non-rainfall type of mist or an underwater spring to water the ground. In other words, the text would then be saying, the reason there weren't any shrubs is because there was no rain, but there was still plenty of water from this kind of mist, which would have then produced shrubs. In other words, if there was a mist, then there would have been water for shrubs, and there would have been shrubs, but there weren't shrubs. So there's no mist. Moses seems to be introducing the solution to the problem of no rain. The question is, how did God cause rain? He prepared clouds. 
Now, I suggested the possibility that on day two of creation week, the waters above the expanse referred to clouds storing rainwater, and I still think that works here. Notice the description of the movement in verse 6. A cloud was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. From the vantage point of an observer, looking out at the horizon, clouds do appear to rise from the surface. The psalmist describes the same kind of reality in Psalm 135.7. He causes the clouds to rise from the ends of the earth. So connecting Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we can say that God drew water up into the sky and stored it in clouds on day two of creation week. And then by day six, those clouds have moved and shifted and are supplying rain for the growth of shrubs of the field, as well as other plant life that requires a regular supply of water. Thus, in these verses, Moses sets the stage for what is to come by indicating that God uses clouds to supply water and More importantly, God grants the responsibility of cultivation to the human. Now, some creationists have inferred from this passage that it didn't rain on earth until the global flood of Noah's day, but the scripture does not actually say that. It's true that we don't get another explicit mention of rain between Genesis 2 and Genesis 6, but neither do we get references to sunrises or sunsets. I'm not sure why we would expect the narrator of Genesis to give us weather reports along the way. Um, He's got more important things to tell us about. However, I believe we do perhaps have an indication here that God provided the abundant water needed for this planet to thrive through the ordinary provision of of rain all the way from the beginning. And many creationists today agree. But the focus of this narrative is not on the rain, but on the man. In verse 7, we get the description of the creation of the human cultivator. Look at it again. Then Yahweh Elohim formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The creator gets his hands dirty, as it were. God's creative act is described with the word formed, depicting God as a potter. One writer uses the term claymation to describe God's work here. God doesn't speak humanity into existence, although from Genesis 1, we know that God did speak, deliberating within himself prior to him taking the dust of the ground and molding it into a human form. The Hebrew has a play on words here that presses the point we need to see. The Hebrew word for the man is ha-adam. The ha on the front represents the definite article, the. The Hebrew for the ground is ha-adamah. God forms Ha-Adam from the dust of Ha-Adama. One author suggested we could think of nicknames for Adam that would reflect this play on words. Nicknames such as Dustin or Dusty or Lando. Another author suggests instead of Earthling, Dirtling. I don't think that's going to catch on. The presence of the definite article is important here. God's formation of this first individual man is meant to be a prototype or a template for all other humans. All humanity is sourced in the ground, not in any prior species of near-human hominids. More important than his connection with the ground, however, is the Creator's giving him life. Not only is God depicted as getting his hands dirty, he's also depicted as getting up close and personal with the dirt. Commentator Derek Kidner points out that breathed is warmly personal with the face-to-face intimacy of a kiss. And there's significance in this act being an act of giving, even self-giving. This breath of life is a unique phrase in Scripture. The word translated breath is only used of humans. Commentator Alan Ross summarizes the biblical significance of what we're reading here. This breath brings more than animation to the man of earth. It brings spiritual understanding, Job 32.8, and a functioning conscience, Proverbs 20.27. You'll want to look those up later. In short, we may conclude that moral capacity is granted to human beings by virtue of this in-breathing. It probably is this in-breathing that constitutes humankind as the image of God. 
While animals are referred to as living creatures, humanity is a different class of living creature, having this unique life breath directly imparted by the Creator. This probably serves as the backdrop for the puzzling action of the resurrected Jesus with his disciples, recorded in John chapter 20, verses 21 to 23. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. While the relationship between this event and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 continues to be debated, it seems likely that John has recorded this in connection with Genesis 2-7 in order to highlight Jesus creating a new humanity and imparting a new quality of life through the Holy Spirit. This new Spirit-provided life enables the forgiveness of sins to be granted as Jesus' followers proclaim the gospel. When that message is rejected, forgiveness is not granted. In this way, the new creation has begun, while the old creation still remains, a season of tension and overlap between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world, during which all people must be called to repent and believe the gospel. The Apostle Paul draws on the last phrase of Genesis 2-7 also in his discussion of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. As Paul contrasts Adam with Jesus, the first man with the last Adam, he indicates that Adam, even in his pre-fall humanity, would have had to experience some kind of transformation to inherit the kingdom of God. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15-47, "...the first man was from the earth." a man of dust. And then he adds in verse 48, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And then he adds in verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. This suggests that we should recognize that Adam was created mortal, perishable, Greg Beale concludes, Paul's understanding, therefore, is that even if Adam had never sinned, his pre-fall existence still needed to be transformed at some climactic point into an irreversible, glorious existence, which Paul identifies as resurrection existence. This fits with recognizing that the whole original creation was not created as it was intended to be finally. Humanity was not inherently immortal. And we might wonder then how his life was to be prolonged, since we already know, having read the rest of the story, that death was, in actuality, a result of and penalty for sin. We'll return to this issue more when we look at Genesis 3. For now, just note that Adam's earthly constitution is not intended to be his final form. So then, in Genesis 2, 8-14... to we are introduced to the famous Garden of Eden, what other scriptures call God's garden. And Yahweh Elohim planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, Yahweh Elohim made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates." In verses 8 and 9, we see God doing more creative work that was not mentioned in chapter 1. After God created the first individual man, he planted a garden for that man. The word garden refers to an enclosed space in which beauty can be enjoyed by people. The word garden is uh, a word that we bring over into English, ultimately, from other languages. In the ancient world, these gardens were often planted outside of a king's palace. And that backdrop might suggest that we should ask here, who's the king who lives in Eden? 
The Greek Bible translated the word with paradesos, which we drag over into English as paradise. Notice that the garden is planted in Eden. So Eden is a place, and God plants his garden next to this place or in front of this place. When the text says it's planted in the east, that could be somewhere to the east of the author and his readers, or more likely, God plants his garden on the east side of the place called Eden. The name Eden probably means well-watered place, and we'll see a focus on the waters flowing from Eden in the next few verses. To to understand the significance of the Garden of Eden, we need to recall how how other places are compared with it in later scripture. For example, in Genesis 13.10, the Jordan Valley is compared with the Garden of Yahweh as the reason Lot chose that region for his family to dwell as they separated from Abraham. We also notice that to get to the Jordan Valley, you have to travel east. This eastward orientation is important. Recall that when Adam and his wife are exiled from the garden, the entrance of the garden is blocked by cherubim stationed at the east. Then when Cain went away from the presence of Yahweh in Genesis 4.16, he is said to travel east of Eden. Forgive my pointing, I don't know where east is. (laughs) Moving eastward is associated with moving away from the presence of God. Thus, the entrance to both the tabernacle and the temple will be on the eastern side of the structure. So, you exit to the east, and you enter by moving west. All in all, we seem to be getting an indication that Yahweh Elohim is the divine king who has established a place to dwell with his people. Eden could be viewed as his earthly headquarters or as a special overlap between heaven and earth. We glanced at Isaiah 66, 1 and 2 last week, which perhaps which portrays heaven as God's throne and earth as his footstool. Perhaps we can stretch this to see the footstool as initially located especially in Eden. Outside of this region, to the east, he plants a garden where he places the first human being right outside his doorstep. Notice also that he created man outside the garden, but then he brought him near to himself by placing him in the garden. As he had done all over the land on day three, the Creator causes the ground to sprout every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Notice that description. Every tree God plants in the garden is pretty and productive. But in chapter three, the serpent will draw attention to one particular tree, and Eve will determine that that tree is a delight to the eyes and good for food, as well as to be desired to make one wise. Eve seems to forget about all the other trees at that point. In Genesis 2.9, we are told that God also planted two unique trees in the middle of the garden. So let's consider the two trees identified by name. The tree of life, apparently, produced fruit, that when eaten by humans at least, would prolong their life. In the tabernacle, the tree of life was represented by the seven-branched menorah, positioned just outside the Holy of Holies. We can perhaps infer from this arrangement that God dwells in the heavenly Holy of Holies, but on day six of creation week, he made an earthly Holy of Holies called Eden. And the garden he planted on the east side of Eden was akin to the holy place in the tabernacle, a place where the priests ministered daily. The menorah in the tabernacle symbolized the light of life that God offered to humans, which was embodied originally in this tree that produced a special kind of fruit. If it was a fruit-bearing tree, akin to the fruit-bearing trees God created on day three of creation week, then that fruit had seeds that could be planted so that humanity was intended to eat from that fruit, take those seeds, plant more of them to grow more trees of life as they spread the presence of the garden all over the planet. This may be reflected in what we see in the tree of life in the New Jerusalem, which is somehow present on both sides of the river of the water of life. So, While God created humanity mortal, 
with the capability of dying. He provided the tree of life that produces fruit that the humans could eat that would make death unnecessary or not inevitable. Well, if the one tree is the tree of life, we might expect the other tree to be the tree of death. And in a sense, that is what it will prove to be. After all, the Lord will say that if Adam eats fruit from this other tree, you shall surely die. Students of Scripture have recognized a connection between the knowledge of good and evil and wisdom, so that some suggest we could think of the other tree as the tree of wisdom. We'll have to wrestle further with the significance of the naming of this tree when we look at Genesis 3, but we can go ahead and draw a summary conclusion. Knowing good and evil has to do with determining for oneself what is good and what is evil. In other words, this tree represents moral autonomy, a characteristic of God that he did not share with humanity in creation. Viewing it this way, one writer has suggested that this is the free will tree. Adam and Eve are are presented with the choice of freely living as God's obedient children by listening to and heeding his word. But as commentator John Goldingay observes, the man and the woman prefer to give themselves another kind of permission and freedom, a permission to renounce the grace of God. Their use of their free will tricks them into servitude. But at this point, it's important to see the two trees together. Humans are apparently encouraged to eat fruit from the tree of life, but they will be prohibited from eating fruit from the other tree. In a sense, this is parallel with the Mosaic law. The tree of life, then, may represent blessings offered to the humans, the blessing of life, contingent on their obedience. And as we'll see in a few verses, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is associated with the curse of death. In other words, these two trees represent the blessings and curses of God's covenant relationship with the original humans. More on that in just a bit. In verses 10 to 14, Moses provides a description of rivers and gold and gemstones connected with the garden and surrounding the garden. God creates a river, a water source in Eden that then flows out to water the garden and then divides outside the garden in four directions. This outward flow and split may suggest that Eden and its garden are positioned on a high elevation so that the rivers would then flow down the mountain or the elevation. And this is supported in, by later passages of Scripture, such as Ezekiel twenty-eight fourteen, which associates the garden with the holy mountain of God. One commentator has suggested that Eden and its garden are here portrayed as the axis mundi, a Latin phrase that means essentially the center of the world. But it, the Latin phrase is used particularly to, have, to describe the center point, the connecting point between heaven and earth. The image on the next slide is one author's sketch of what's being described here. And I've included on there the compass to see the eastern orientation of the geography there. Now the question on the table is, why does Moses even go into all this geographical detail? Moses later records in the same book a global flood. And if we believe that he was recording straightforward historical narrative, then what significance can the names of these rivers and these regions have to his original audience, or to us for that matter. In other words, if Moses affirms a global flood, then he knows that Eden and its garden were destroyed, and these rivers would have also been obliterated. So what's going on? First of all, tradition could have plausibly been carried from Adam down through the generations concerning the actual names of these rivers and regions. If so, it wouldn't be far-fetched to discover that people settling after the global flood named new places and new rivers after old ones. This happens all the time throughout history. Second, we observe that two of the river names are famous and two are rare. The two rare ones have very generic meanings. Pishon is associated with a verb that means to bounce around the way a boat might move on an intense river. And Gihon is associated with a verb that means to gush. The region names, Chavela, Kush, and Assyria, certainly are known places post-flood. Interestingly, all three of these regions will later be associated with enemies of God's people. Perhaps Moses hints at the original goodness of the prototypes of those places and peoples. It's hard to be more specific. 
Perhaps the general observation that Moses seems to plot this on a map for his readers, even though the map he describes would have been unknown to his readers, is in order to reinforce the historical reality of this place. Eden and its garden was not some kind of myth. It was a real place where the events described in these chapters historically took place as Moses describes them. The references to gold, bdellium, and onyx stone probably have two functions. First, it enriches the description of the garden and the surrounding area. Everything that humanity would need was supplied and then some. Secondly, and probably more importantly, these three items, gold, bdellium, and onyx stone, will show up as key building materials in the tabernacle and later the temple. Thus, Eden and its garden are being defined as the prototypical sacred space, the original sanctuary on earth. If this is the case, then it makes even more sense that we are introduced to God's priest in verse 15. Yahweh Elohim took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The word translated put is not the same word we saw back in verse 8. Instead, it could be more literally translated, Yahweh Elohim took the man and caused him to rest in the Garden of Eden. Moses will later use this verb to refer to what God will do with the people of Israel in the land of Canaan. For example, in Exodus 33, 14, we read, And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Same word. It is also associated with safety and security in Deuteronomy 12:10. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, This then ties into what we reviewed last week in connection with the promise of God's Sabbath rest. Here, the garden is the place of rest God has initially provided for His people. But it's also a place of work. And so we're already introduced to that paradoxical concept of restful work. As one commentator puts it, it should be noted that even before the fall, man was expected to work. Paradise was not a life of leisured unemployment. It's the last phrases that we need to camp out on. God placed the man in the garden to work it and keep it, as the ESV says. The King James has to dress it and keep it. The New King James has to tend and keep it. And the New American Standard has to cultivate it and keep it. The words dress, tend, and cultivate focus on Adam's physical responsibility for the garden itself. Thus, he is being portrayed as a gardener. But there's more than meets the eye here. In the ancient world, kings often used the imagery of gardening to describe their rule. And both ancient and more modern kings often maintain gardens as part of their royal residence. Professor Peter Gentry writes, Kings in Mesopotamia created and kept extravagant gardens. In fact, gardener was a descriptive title or epithet for monarchs in Mesopotamia. This use has a similarity to Louis XIV's gardens in Versailles. It showed that he was able to control nature and form entire trees into topiaries. Thus, gardening was a royal vocation. The role of Adam as gardener further portrays him as a royal figure. But when we look more closely at the second verb, we find another trajectory of meaning. The word is translated keep in all the versions I mentioned earlier, but the word can also be translated guard or protect. Thus, as Desmond Alexander puts it in the ESV Study Bible, the man's role is to be not only a gardener, but also a guardian. And when we consider the two verbs together, the pair of them, later in Moses' writings, we gain greater clarity. The pair of verbs, translated here to work it and keep it, show up together again in Numbers chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, describing the work of the Levites. They shall keep guard over the high priest and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister or serve at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. Later on in Scripture, the Levites are referred to as the guardians or keepers of the gates. Their role involves protecting the high priest. And on one occasion at least, after the golden calf idolatry, they volunteer to slaughter their guilty kinsmen. Thus, the verbs could be translated as to serve and protect, similar to slogans often associated with the law enforcement officers in our culture. 
So when we connect this with our reading of Genesis, perhaps we should see Adam as more than a mere gardener. There's also a grammatical oddity in Hebrew in Genesis 2.15. The it that Adam is said to work and keep or serve and protect doesn't seem to go back to the word garden. Rather, it seems to point back to Eden. Now, Moses has set us up to expect humanity to cultivate plants that require cultivation. So that is part of the meaning of the terms. But when it comes to verse 15, Moses has worded his description in such a way that foreshadows priestly responsibilities in the tabernacle. And given the garden being positioned to the east of the place called Eden, the man is being pictured more as a security guard. Now, if Moses intends this picture, then he is anticipating that something in God's good creation could potentially pose a threat. If the man is to protect sacred space, then there must be some potential threat from which sacred space needs to be protected. Drawing together Genesis 1, 26-28 and Genesis 2:15, we should see humanity as a royal priesthood, royal priests. We'll seek to draw up some implications of this identity at the end of our time. In verses 16 and 17, we're confronted with the famous permission and prohibition regarding eating. But I'd like us to consider this in terms of God's covenant. Look at verses 16 and 17. And Yahweh Elohim commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. As I mentioned earlier, the two trees may be emblematic of the blessings and curses of a covenant. The Lord graciously provided a garden for humanity to fellowship with Him in, laid out commands, and communicated the punishment for disobedience. Here we see part of the legislation that would regulate the covenant relationship between God and humans. Genesis 2 doesn't give us the commands reflected in the creation mandate of chapter 1, That should serve as the mission statement for humanity, but it is part of their responsibility before the Lord. Here, the focus is on how they're going to eat. Adam is commanded emphatically to eat fruit from every tree in the garden. The garden's abundant fruit trees have been given to Adam as a gift, abundant provision for an abundant life of obedient service to the Lord. It is a kind of permission, but it is emphatically worded as a command. Theologian Mark Talbot observes, God was commanding Adam to roam through the garden and experience the pleasure of tasting the fruit of each kind of tree. It's like when you tell your kid to do something that you know they're going to enjoy, but they're hesitant at first. You still got to tell them to do it so that they can do it. And then when they do it, they enjoy it. Also implied is the command, don't try to go provide food for yourself. Don't depend on your own resources to make food for yourself. Eat what I have provided. In this case, if Adam would live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord, then he would be able to live by the fruit that God supplies, certainly not by bread alone. But the prohibition and the threat rightly capture our attention. The tree itself is part of God's good creation. Thus, the tree and its fruit cannot be classed as either not good or bad in any sense of the word. I wonder if we should think of the tree something like this. We could translate its name as the knowing good and evil tree. Thus, in some fashion, it offers the opportunity for humans to know good and evil. That means there are two ways that humans could acquire the knowledge of good and evil, both dependent on their approach to this tree. The obvious but wrong way would be to eat the fruit of the tree. In doing so, as we'll see in Genesis 3, the humans will be usurping the role of God, seeking to determine what is good and what is evil on their own, apart from His Word. But the other way, the right way, would have been to obey this prohibition. They'd gain the proper knowledge of good and evil by refraining from eating the fruit. They'd be affirming the goodness of the commandment of the Lord. In other words... While the tree itself cannot be called bad or evil or even not good, but their action of eating the fruit this tree produces is indeed evil. Their choice to do this involves them in outright rejection of God's word. 
Knowing good and evil is surely a good thing, but it is to be received by humans from God's Word. He defines good and evil, and we must listen to Him and believe Him. The threat of death overshadows this story, doesn't it? Much debate is circulated around this threat, especially as the serpent will contradict it, and then the narrative seems to continue for quite a long time before Adam dies. We're later told that Adam will live 930 years. This presses us to raise two questions about Genesis 2.17. Should we press the phrase, in the day that, to mean that Adam will drop dead within 24 hours of his ingesting the fruit from this tree? Secondly, what does it mean to die? First, the phrase translated in the day that is commonly used as an idiom for when. Nevertheless, the phrase still retains a temporal, time-bound meaning. Whether or not it implies that we should expect Adam to die, however we define that, within 24 hours, it'd be surprising if the threatened consequence didn't occur for nearly a thousand years. So then what does it mean to die? Well, as it turns out, the Bible defines death in a variety of ways, and all of them probably have significance to this event. First, as we all know, death refers to the cessation of physical life. The human heart stops beating, the blood stops pumping, the brain stops functioning. This is what's going to happen to Adam 930 years later. It's possible to translate this threat as, for when you eat of it, you shall surely begin to die. I don't know whether that takes away from the urgency of the threat, but it is a legitimate linguistic possibility. Similarly, if eating fruit from the tree of life would perpetuate their life in this world, then dying could be being cut off from the tree, the source of perpetual life. This shades over into the common idea of spiritual death. Rather than focusing on being cut off from the tree of life, Adam will be cut off from God's presence. Eden and its garden are the prototypical promised land as well as the prototypical temple. Thus, death includes being exiled from the land, which is the aspect of death that's going to be emphasized in Genesis 3. Thus, the story of the land in the Bible begins right here in Genesis 2, not in Genesis 12. The story of the land continues then throughout Genesis with the building of altars in various places that the patriarchs journeyed. Then it'll include Mount Sinai, before we ever reach Canaan, that little plot of land in the Middle East was never the trajectory, the final promised land. No, indeed, as the author of Hebrews makes clear, even Abraham was anticipating a heavenly city, a heavenly homeland, a better country than Israel could ever be. Adam should have expanded the garden across the globe. He failed. Israel should have expanded the holy land across the globe. They failed. Though Yahweh chose Jerusalem as the place His name would dwell, that temple was destroyed. As Adam was exiled from the garden, so Israel was exiled from the land. Though God graciously returned them to that land, He Himself did not return to dwell in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. Instead, the prophets set the expectation for a glorious temple and a new Jerusalem. Their return to the land was primarily to set the stage for the arrival of the Messiah. So what happened to the Garden of Eden? There is a biblical hint that the Garden of Eden was destroyed in the flood. There's also a hint of what would happen to the Garden in this passage. One of the two problems this passage began with returns when God exiles Adam and Eve from the Garden. There will no longer be a human to cultivate the Garden. Presumably, this would mean that the beauty of the plant life in the garden would fade, and the plants that require human cultivation would die in time. However, Ezekiel 31 provides a poetic hint of the garden's destruction. Ezekiel uses the trees of Eden as a prophetic symbol for nations of the world, as a prophetic warning against Pharaoh of Egypt. In verse 18, the Lord says through Ezekiel, Whom are you thus like in glory and in greatness among the trees of Eden? You shall be brought down with the trees of Eden to the world below. 
You shall lie among the uncircumcised with those who are slain by the sword. Now, yes, here, the trees stand for nations, and the Lord is poetically describing how he has brought judgment against various nations in history. But the specific tie to Eden, the trees of Eden, not just the trees of any given place, but the trees of Eden, suggests a backdrop that recognizes Eden's destruction and all the trees being flattened, with brought down to the place of the dead even. Ultimately, Jesus is the one we have to look to here. Jesus would ultimately fulfill everything. Eden, the garden, the tabernacle, and the temple were intended to be. Jesus didn't intend for his people to remain in that little plot of land in the Middle East, just as he didn't intend humanity to remain in the garden forever. Jesus sent his people out to make disciples of all nations. The church is constituted as a temple spreading across the globe. And fully and finally, Jesus will return, having prepared the final place for his people, a garden city. New Jerusalem come down from heaven to earth. Humanity was created to be God's royal priests. When the original humans failed so quickly, that role was expanded to a royal priesthood called the nation of Israel. When they failed repeatedly, the Messiah himself came as king and priest, high priest, and he did not fail. He died, but his death was not because he rebelled against his father. No, no. Rather, he died to redeem rebels. He died and rose and ascended in order to bring about a new creation. Unlike in the beginning, when God created the place before the people, now God creates the people before the place. Thus, as we are being renewed in the image of our great royal priest, Jesus, we are being restored in our role as royal priests, And we still hold on to the promise that we will reign with him and we will serve him as priests forever and ever in the new creation. We should not not look for a holy land on this planet nor a holy place on this planet. Indeed, we are the holy place and the holy land is to be the whole land, that is the whole earth. Pursuing the knowledge of good and evil killed humanity. But now, pursuing the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus gives life to humanity. The Spirit of God lives within us 24-7. We are the new covenant temple. Adam, Abraham, the patriarchs, Israel, David, and all Davidic kings were unfaithful covenant partners. Jesus has come to fulfill all the covenants. He is God's faithful human covenant partner. All the promises of God in all the covenants are fulfilled in Christ and nowhere else. Nothing good comes to us apart from Him. And so now we represent Jesus as His ambassadors. If being a royal priest includes the call to serve and protect sacred space, then each of us is now responsible for serving and protecting each other. We are to fight sin in our own lives, pursue maintaining pure hearts, and uphold the truth of God's Word, refusing to compromise and refusing to let our brothers and sisters be led astray into false teaching or being overwhelmed by the weight of sin and guilt. We have the tools to do this. We have the Spirit. We have the Word. That's all it takes. So let us pray that God would help us as we seek to care for one another in that way. Father, we thank you for the things that you show us in your word about who we are, who you've made us to be. We don't deserve to be royal. We don't deserve to be priestly. But you make us that way anyway. Sinners, though we continue to be. Thank you for cleansing us by the blood of the Lamb. Thank you for anointing us to serve as your royal priests even now in this world, but ultimately with the hope of serving you forever in a way that's purified and completely unhindered by sin or brokenness. And so in the meantime, we continue to serve with brokenness, with sin, and we ask that you would motivate us by hope, by the promises you've given us in your word, 
And we thank you that the Spirit does indeed live within us to continue maintaining our own purity, enabling us to be obedient, and giving us all the resources we need to help serve and protect one another. Help us to be busy about that. Help us to take that seriously and make that a priority in our lives, to care for one another as we represent you in this world. For Jesus' sake, amen. So...